Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Lee Einbinder, CEO of FinServe Acquisition Corp. 1 and 2, and former vice chair at Barclays. SPACs, SPACs, and more SPACs, it has been a SPAC mania over the last year, catapulting a fringe financial transaction to the front page of the Wall Street Journal as hundreds of SPACs went public. A longtime FIG and fintech banker at both Lehman and Barclays, Lee comes on the show to help demystify SPACs, what they do, and both the advantages and scrutinies of them. We also dig into FinServe Acquisition Corp. 1's proposed merger with Catapult, what fintech was like in the late 90s, the industry trends he's most excited about in the coming year, and a rapid-fire round with a surprise answer about what students should do after graduating school in 2021. Let's get started. Hi, Lee, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is fantastic having you on the show, especially a Wharton alum. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be with you. Great. So I think to start, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, of course, your path to Wharton, and then a long rise within Lehman Brothers, and then, of course, Barclays, until you got to FinServe Acquisition Corp. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your path to where you are today? Sure. Be happy to do that. It's pretty straightforward. I was a career investment banker. So I started in the business in 1982. I don't think you're around then, Ryan. Maybe not even a gleam in your parents' eyes. Definitely but um, I started as an analyst. I actually went on to being an associate. And back in the early 80s, business school seemed like it was mandatory. And the funny thing was, so I, I was working at the time at DLJ in 1984. And I had been accepted to Wharton. Uh, I did my undergrad at Princeton. And um, I had the choice of, uh, I applied to Wharton coming out of college. I got accepted, but I decided to work on Wall Street. And I'd been in the business for three or four years, but everyone around me seemed to have an MBA. And Mm -hmm. I said, before I get too old, let me um, sort of get my insurance policy. And so I literally called up Wharton. I had just gotten paid my bonus in December of 85, Mm -hmm. I guess. And I called up Wharton. I said, you know, I, I didn't accept your acceptance back in, in 1982 when I graduated, but can you take me in two weeks? And, and Wharton, I think they still have it, but they had the January matric program. Uh, it is not around anymore. Oh, it's not around anymore. Sorry to hear that. I think only Columbia. So literally two weeks later, after I begged and pleaded, I found myself back in business school. The best thing that, I hate to say it, it wasn't Wharton, but I took a brief vacation. I went to Florida and I met my uh, now wife. So we've married you know, over 30 years. And it was because I went to Wharton and I started dating her during business school. We got married at the end of the business school. So anyway, that's what I'll remember most fondly. But but Wharton was great. And, you know, after Wharton, I, I just picked up where I left off, which was I went back to the street. I uh, went to Solomon Brothers at the time. I worked in their financial institutions group. I had a choice. I remember back then to work in FIG, what they called FIG, or everything else. And I decided to do FIG. And I basically was a FIG banker my whole career after that. I found my way to Lehman in mid-90s, and then after the well-documented demise of Lehman Brothers, Barclays picked up the ashes, and, and I stayed on Barclays. So I, 
I ran the Fig Group for a number of years at, at Barclays and, and also at Lehman. I started the FinTech Group at Lehman in the, in the late 90s when FinTech wasn't even a word. As a matter of fact, the group, as we called it back then, we had to make up a name and we called it Internet Financial Services, which is kind of like, it sounds like a silly name today, but FinTech wasn't, wasn't a name back then. And I started, you know, we didn't have anyone doing it. And I started going out to, to California and Menlo you know, Park and all those right. Silicon Valley. And I was calling on Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. And that was when they were babies. And I was still relatively young, too. And so yeah. um, I've always had an interest in fintech. And even after I was managing a broadly our financial services group, and my last leg was at Barclays, I was a vice chairman. And uh, we can go on to a SPACs. So that's, uh, that's where I left off. So that was my career. <laughs> couple follow-ups here. Yeah. So FinTech in the late nineties, I remember we had Steve McLaughlin on the podcast as well, of course, financial technology partners. And he said the same thing, you know, in the late nineties, he was in FinTech, but nobody even knew what it was. What were the types of companies that you were even covering back then? I saw, you know, you mentioned PayPal with Musk and Teal. Yeah. And I know Steve well, and he he was a baby then. So I, <laughs> I was at least probably an adult and he was a baby, but what was FinTech back then? I'll tell you what FinTech was. It was Payment companies like PayPal, and that's when PayPal got going. It was the active trading firms. People say to me, you know, in banking, what's your favorite deal? But one of the firms I called them back then was a company called Ameritrade, and they were getting into active trading. It's, it was almost like the Robin Hood of today. Right. And I befriended a guy named Joe Ricketts who founded Ameritrade. And the reason I talk about my favorite deal is because this is years later. Mm-hmm. Joe called me up one day and said, can you help me buy the Chicago Cubs? I was on the phone. I said, absolutely. I hung up the phone. I said, oh, shit, I'm a fig banker. I have no idea what I'm doing. That sounds really exciting. But it was uh, online trading. It was, um, I spent a lot of time with the folks at Reuters, which is now part of Thomson Reuters and then Refinitiv. But it was payment for order flow and firms like Instanet and you know, a lot of the precursor to, and, and even actually I worked on a number of transactions, which were the precursor to blockchain, uh, because people were trying to do, you know, protected, secure B2B payments and things like that. So a lot of the companies that exist today sort of have their, you know, sort of have a background dating back to them. So Lee, going to SPACs now, so you eventually left this very senior role at Barclays to launch FinServe Acquisition Corp. 1. So what was the impetus for this leave? And can you tell us a little bit about this spec? Sure. So first of all, I it was well-planned in the sense that I sort of fell into SPACs, um, truth be told, which was I had given up sort of my day-to-day management responsibilities. So at one point, there was probably 100 people in the FIG group, and I felt very responsible for all those people. When I became a vice chairman in 2018, I had more freedom to think about things, and I was poking around, looking at fintech opportunities to invest in just on a personal level. And I had mm-hmm. some friends that were doing that with me too. And I was actually looking at investing in a fintech SPAC sponsor, a couple of them. And the more time I spent with it, a number of folks approached me and said, and my partner and said, you know, we think you'd be good sponsors rather than just being a passive uh, investor. We think you'd be a great team. And at that time, you know, SPACs certainly were not as popular as they are today. Someone quoted me a stat earlier today. Was there's a lot going on in the SPAC industry, but they were talking about back in this is only like five years ago, but I think there were like seven SPACs done in a year. Now we're seeing seven SPACs done in a day. Right. But it still wasn't popular back in even 2019. And I was looking around. And so a bunch of folks approached me. 
So for me, if I was going to run the SPAC, it meant I had to leave my job. So that was basically the impetus. And so I retired from Barclays and it was, it worked out great. I spoke to the senior management of Barclays. I said, this is something I'd really like to do. And, you know, we left on great terms as Mepac Barclays has been one of my advisors. Mm-hmm. And so it's been terrific. I've had so much fun. I'm probably working. I shouldn't say this too loudly. I'm working two or three times harder than I worked in certainly the last several years of my banking career. So it's a 20, it's, it's actually a 24 seven job for me. I'm having a ton of fun. We've already, you know, our first deal uh, we announced already, it's emerging with a company called Catapult, which is a great company. We're going to close that deal in the next uh, month or two. We're on FinServe 2 now, and we're hopefully going to get something done quickly there. And, you know, and if that goes well, we'll do FinServe 3. So it's been fun because I get to meet every day. And obviously, a lot of us, including myself, have been working from home over the last year. But I'm on Zoom calls all day, and I meet with really interesting people and I'm looking at interesting ideas and and our SPAC just to give you some background on our SPAC so our first IPO we raised 250 million dollars and as I was saying before I think I was one of the first sort of you know investment bankers doing a SPAC there are a few like Michael Klein who I've known for a long time has sponsored them and a few other people but a lot of SPACs were sponsored by sort of industry veterans ex-CEOs and so you know when I was thinking about it I sort of was even questioning myself can I do this the fact of the matter is an investment banker, you couldn't get better training to do a SPAC because a SPAC, as I like to say to potential targets, it's a combination of doing an M&A deal and an IPO. And so what you're really doing is you're valuing a company, you're facilitating their entrance into the, uh, into the capital markets. And our SPAC is focused on the things that I did for 35 plus years, which is fintech and financial services. So we have a list of companies that we track. It's now probably about a thousand names on that list. And when you think about it, there are all these different sub-verticals within financial services and fintech. So fintech alone, there's regtech, there's payments, there's fraud and identification. I mean, I can go on and on and on. There's, there's, there's different types of payments, B2B payments. Yeah. There's trading, there's infrastructure. And then in traditional financial services, you know, it could be insurance services, it could be specialty finance, it could be um, asset management. And then there's verticals within each one of these. So you'd be, you know, one of my concerns going into it was, and I remember someone showed me some statistics. So rule of thumb, and, and these rules have been broken, but rule of thumb is when you raise a SPAC, the transaction you do is kind of three to five times that size. So we, our first IPO, we raised 250. So that would suggest our deal size needs to be like 750 to a billion 250. The fact is all those rules have been thrown out the window. Just look at the deal that was announced <laughs> yesterday with Grab. I forget the number, but it's you know tens of billions of dollars. So so there's no limit on the size, on the upside. There's probably a limit on the downside, and we could talk about that if you want, but that's more about uh, liquidity in the stock and, and things like that. And so and and also the pipe market, which oftentimes pipes are raised in conjunction with a SPAC transaction, has gotten um, you know, it's it, it's huge. So SPACs have become obviously a big part of the market. I can give you my views on where it's going. You know, there's tremendous opportunities and I've leveraged off of, you know, if I can give some career advice to folks that may be younger, but, you know, build upon your skill set. And so I'm leveraging um, my network that I built up over a long period of time in banking, my, my knowledge, you know, the ability to, you know, value a company, the ability to take a company public in a sector that I know. If you don't know the sector, you shouldn't be, you know, doing a SPAC combination with that as a sponsor. So 
So Lee, I think most of our listeners are familiar with, you know, what a SPAC is at a high level. You know, you IPO this, you know, shell company, then have about two years to merge with a private company as the means of taking it public instead of, you know, an IPO or a direct listing. But taking it one level deeper, can you walk through the key agreements that need to take place and the incentives for each party? So typical SPAC process and you know, more typically there's a banker on the sell side as much as I hate to see that, but most targets hire bankers these days. So the, right. the processes are becoming somewhat pretty cookie cutter and straightforward. They will want you to sign a term sheet, which typically would bind you. It's a general agreement on terms. The terms, and, and these term sheets, by the way, and there's a lot of scrutiny by the SEC and others about amount of due diligence that sponsors do on companies, but these term sheets can be done in, in days, not weeks. So, you know, what we typically do is we meet with a company. Again, we're in a Zoom world now, but you sort of um, get to know them by Zoom, unfortunately. But you have managed meetings, follow-up discussions, and then you enter into a, a term sheet. And the term sheet will cover the basic terms are the price, the structure of your sponsor promote. We could talk about that. Lock ops, management incentives. Typically, there's an exclusivity provision, meaning we can't and the target can't entertain other transactions while we're doing this. We talk about the size that we're targeting. There could be a minimum size, the size of the pipe, the fees. So it's basically the term sheet. Some people call it term sheet. Some people call it an LOI. really encapsulates everything that's really the, all the key business terms that are going to go into a definitive agreement. So you typically sign that. Then you go raise your pipe. When you raise your pipe, there are investor agreements where the pipe investors are, are committing that you know to buy the deal at a price typically these deals price at $10 and that commitment is through the closing of the business combination once you raise the pipe and get those pipe documents signed you announce your deal and that's when you see these big splashy announcements or CNBC whatever you put out an investor presentation it's a short investor presentation and then the clock starts ticking where I tend to call SPAC sort of a reverse IPO. In a normal way, IPO, you could spend six months getting ready for the IPO and with your underwriters and your lawyers, you finally go to market and then you know, hopefully you get your deal done, right? The SPAC is almost the opposite where you quickly get to an agreement on terms. You go to the pipe market, depending on market conditions, that can be pretty quick and you announce your deal. It's then after that, that you go and file your S4 with the SEC you get cleared by that. You ultimately file a proxy statement. You go through a shareholder vote, which is kind of a, and there's a redemption period, which is really the key part of it. And I can get into the details of that. And so that process, so once you announce that your deal and your pipe is done, the time to closing is typically another three months. And that's why I sort of call it a reverse. And, you know, there are still some risks, but the risks, you know, if you price your transaction right, the risks are pretty minimal. I mean, you know, you have certainty that your deal is going to get done. Again, there's there's always some risk, but that's one of the reasons why people like the SPAC process in addition to being allowed to show projections and things like that. Yeah. And so two things I want to follow up on, you know, because I, I think these terms get thrown around all the time in the news and people may not be familiar with what they really mean. Can you talk about first the promote, which is something that you mentioned, and then of course the redemption sure. process? So the promote is the sponsor. I'm a SPAC sponsor, or as I sometimes say, I'm part of the SPAC mafia now. The sponsor of the SPAC puts up the initial money. Typically, rule of thumb, it's around 3% of your IPO. And you know, Wall Street still seems to have a lock on the 
underwriting business where the fees are pretty standard. I'm having been a career investment banker, I'm still not sure it's like paying a real estate commission. I'm not sure why the fees haven't changed over the years. So it's been a huge bonanza for the street. I'm, you know, sitting here as we sit here today on April 14th. You've seen a number of the big banks uh, reporting mm-hmm. earnings, and they've all benefited incredibly from the right. back boom in, in the in the first quarter. I mean, we've never seen anything like it. And so the major, the significant majority of the fees that you raise are to pay the underwriters. And so in my most recent spec, so FinServ two, we just IPO'd that around six weeks ago. We raised $300 million from public investors, but we had to put $8 million into the sponsor. So that's sort of your around 3% rule, if you will, give or take. DNO insurance has gone up a lot. That's another issue. So we put up the initial money. And for that, we sort of the standard terms, we will get 20% of the pro forma company. You know, some people say that's excessive. I'm not going to comment on whether it's excessive or not. We will lose that $8 million in this example. If we don't find a business combination, we lose all that money. So whereas the IPO investors that invested the $300 million, they get their money back that's being held in a trust, it's being invested in, in treasuries. So for them, it's a basically a riskless exercise, if you will, where they really have an option on the upside. For us, we could lose all our money. And then typically, when you negotiate the transaction, you may negotiate some of those terms. So typically what we may do is take a portion of that sponsor promote and say, look, we'll earn it over time if the stock hits certain levels like 12, 14, $15, whatever. So, you know, there's different ways to to talk about that. But and, and the other thing to keep in mind from a target's perspective, the dilution we bring to the table is pretty small. It's usually 5% or less. And so what most targets are focused on is getting the deal done at a reasonable valuation and really riding the upside. And so I happen to think we bring a lot of value to the table and we're sort of the tail wagging the dog and people focus on the sponsor economics, but that's not the big deal here. And of course, so you mentioned DNO for our list, that's directors and officers insurance. We can Correct. link that in the episode description. So Correct. I do want to get to uh, actually an interview that I had a few weeks ago with the CEO of Upstart, which is a fintech that just went public, the CEO, Dave Gerard. I asked him why he chose the IPO and what his thoughts are on SPACs. And his quote is, to me, SPACs is like you're playing a video game and you're about to reach the top level and you hand the joystick to someone else. And I don't know why I would ever want to hand the joystick to someone else. What do you think about this critique of the SPAC process? I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that. And I didn't see the interview, but again, the way we approach business combinations with targets. And and it's it's no different than when I was an investment banker and did this. We say to them, we're going to be your partner, right? It's their company. There are some SPACs that view themselves as operators and want to, sometimes they'll come in and help manage the company. Mm -hmm. That's not what we do. We'll take a board seat or two board seats. And so we'll provide some sort of stewardship. Mm -hmm. But our job is to help, is to ensure their successful execution of the IPO effectively. So we are sort of helping guide them helping with the investor presentation, critiquing it, coming up with the right structure, coming up with the right valuation, ultimately gets validated by investors. And so I don't know who's controlling the joystick in in that (laughs) description, but it's still management's company and we're there just to facilitate. We don't pretend that it's our company because at the end of the day, our IPO investors will own a piece of the company. Typically, the selling shareholders and management will still control 
control the company, which means 50% or more of the company pro forma. So we have no illusion that it's not our company. But, you know, we provide input, and I think most of the time it's appreciated. Yeah, I would assume he's probably just going after the SPACs that are a bit more activist and hands-on, much more hands-on management approach. So I do want to return to FinServe Acquisition Corp. 1 and your merger with Catapult. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Catapult is and why you ended up partnering with them for this deal? So Catapult is a, um, it's a company that really provides a great technology and it's integrated with merchants. So, you know, a good example and their largest client is Wayfair. And it's a version of what I would call the buy now, pay later company. So as a matter of fact, when we were doing our Catapult deal, a company called The Firm, which is mm-hmm. run by one of the former PayPal mafia, Max, was going public at the same time. And actually, Catapult and The Firm are partners. And the way it works is, nowadays, if you're shopping for something on the web, you will often be given the option to say, do you want to, you know, you could pay over time. And the way a firm, I think, typically gets paid is they may get paid something from the merchant. But what happens is, when you're doing that transaction, so again, I'll use Wayfair, you're going to buy a piece of furniture or whatever. It goes through a waterfall typically. So there may be a credit card company, it could be a buy now, pay later company to finance your purchase. But they reject a significant percentage of consumers. But you know, a significant percentage of the US population, some people estimate it's 35% to 40%, really don't have great credit. So what happens is, and, and with technology now, and this is what's really neat about it, is within five seconds, you know, you won't even know it. You'll be shopping on Wayfair. Maybe you're not a pristine credit, and it will default to effectively catapult. And it may may or may not say catapult. So with a firm, I think it's called something else. But it will default to catapult, and they effectively will provide the financing where you will pay them back over a year. It's technically structured as a lease, so it's called a lease to own product. But the point of it is, is that it's a seamless transaction. It's all driven by technology. You're on either the internet or on your mobile app. And it seamlessly either it directly integrates or there's a waterfall where it get to get to catapult. And what's great about catapult is they take very little information. So they, they're not asking for any additional information. I don't even think they ask for your checking account information. But with AI today and everything else, there are so many ways you can determine a consumer's creditworthiness. I mean, there are companies around that could just tell your creditworthiness. Fraud is typically the biggest issue in these transactions. But just the way you talk or just the way you move your mouse, there's you know, so many things you don't realize that companies behind the scenes are detecting today. Right. But they have terrific technology to figure out if a consumer is a good credit or a bad credit, how much they're going to advance them. And that all happens in literally you know, split seconds that that happens. So that's what Catapult is. And they were, they were the premier company that was doing this for e-commerce. The, the product itself has been around for 50 years. There are other companies that have been doing it. And Catapult was clearly the leader on the technology side and doing it you know, primarily, almost exclusively for e-commerce. And so this is a company where its revenues and EBITDA are growing at like 100% a year. And wow. so we knew the industry, we loved the company and, and investors would like the company, so. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, with this SPAC, Catapult will be public very soon. How do you get a private company ready to be a public company so fast without you know, the traditional IPO process? There's a lot of governments and regulatory work that has to get put in place. Yeah, you know, the regulatory, it's obviously like they have to, there's certainly 
you know, as we speak, the SEC is, you know, changing the rules as we speak. Yeah. But the key thing is you need to get an audit, which needs to be done prior to closing. And when I say an audit, it's got to be a PCAOB audit, which means it's got to be in compliance with public standards, which not every company does. So that takes time. You know, the biggest issue, which you didn't necessarily mention, is being a public company is very different than a private company. So it's not necessarily the, if you will, the regulatory or the government side. It's, you know, having an investor relations team, having... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the right compliance functions. And, you know, you have to be meeting with analysts frequently, not just on a quarterly basis. So, and a lot of this can be outsourced, but those are the things that need to be put in place. And it's like, it's not perfect. Clearly what you're seeing in the SPAC market is the SPAC market to some degree is cannibalizing what used to be the later stage VC market. And so I I was starting to say before, one of my concerns going to SPACs, will, will there be enough deals around? Because you know, if we're targeting a, a deal in the billion to $2 billion range, up until someone showed me a stat two years ago, how many billion-dollar deals were done in fintech or financial services, how many M&A deals, it wasn't a long list. But what you have now is many, many companies that are growing fast, that are getting access to the public market sooner. And it's not just, I mean, the SPACs are just the facilitators. The real players in the market are the Fidelities, T. Rowe Price, Newberger Berman, you know, mm-hmm. all the well-known institutional investors, because they are the primary investors in the pipes. And as long as they're investing, they are the ones that are validating the investment thesis. And they're the ones that are investing, if you will, in public equity at, at an earlier stage. Lee, final question here. You've obviously spent a long time in fintech, and we mentioned that incredible number of sub-verticals and verticals across fintech in the US, UK, and beyond. What are some of the fintech trends you're most excited about in the coming years from your seat? Yeah, look, um, on both of our roadshows, we get that question by investors, you know, what do you like and what don't you like? We like a lot of things. So when we get called by targets, we usually say, let's take a look under the hood and we'll let you know. You know, we clearly have a bias more towards the infrastructure infrastructure mm-hmm. side of fintech. So companies that provide the pipes and plumbing to facilitate financial services, you know, as an example. We like the B2B payment side versus the B2C payments, which is a more mature business. B2B is, is more fragmented. We like the whole fraud and identification space. We love blockchain, you know, and crypto. Again, we're talking today where Coinbase, <laughs> um, you know, price near direct listing. There are fewer companies around because they're, they're just fewer and less mature, but we think blockchain and crypto is here to stay. You know, the companies that need to spend a lot of money to capture eyeballs and are competing ultimately with the big financial institutions, we're less enamored with, right? I think the JP Morgans, the cities, et cetera, they're not going anywhere. And these companies are investing billions of dollars in technology. And so to think that you're going to displace them, I think is is a mistake. And, And Jamie, who I've known over a long time, and I used to thank him and Sandy Wild for in my okay. earlier days, he's the first to say that, you know, fin, you know, you got to be careful of the fintechs. And, you know, and I think he, he does that to keep people in his organization on their toes, right? Because the fintechs are disrupting. But there's no question that the bigger firms, and whether it's banks or insurance or asset management, they're going to spend on technology, they'll acquire technology. So we're trying to find companies that are unique. Now, maybe they get bought ultimately, but that provide kind of a unique angle and with a big TAM, you know, so... Yeah. And of course, Jamie Dimon released his shareholder letter, I think, just two weeks ago. I'll link that in the episode description as well. He talks a lot about fintech disruption and how JP Morgan is thinking about it. I thought it was a really good read 
But I do think it's it's pretty funny. Some people in fintech love to talk about disrupting the banks. And you know, you have to say JP Morgan has over a trillion dollars in assets. I don't think they're too too worried about getting you know shut down and totally upended anytime soon. So Lee, you've entered the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about eight or so questions for you, Max, like 10 second reply. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First job you ever had. Analyst at a firm called A.G. Becker, which is no longer around. And this, you'd never had like a lifeguarding job, anything like that. Oh, 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 you know what I did? I sold vacuum cleaner bags at the flea market on Long Island. (laughs) Oh my, where in Long Island? Uh, I grew up in Woodbury, went to Slouse at high school, but I had my own business. I actually sold vacuum cleaner bags and then I turned it into a t-shirt printing business. I used to print the decals in my basement. I made a ton of money actually. And uh, I, I used to buy the shirts. I went, I went into Brooklyn. I bought the t-shirts for like a buck and sold them for three bucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You should have been an entrepreneur. This is scrappy. <laughs> All right. Now, how about uh, your professional hero? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I mentioned Jamie before just because I used to do a bunch of work with him and I have a lot of respect for Jamie and he's a couple of years older than me, but I have a tremendous amount of respect, even though he's, he used to be a fierce competitor and he probably helped put Lehman out of business, uh, much to my chagrin, but, but I think he's probably the best, one of, if not the best financial executives around. Now, how about the first FinTech app you ever downloaded? You know, that's a hard one because certainly we all have mobile apps now from your banking institution. So I don't even know if that's considered a fintech, you know, certainly have Venmo and things like mm-hmm. that. That's certainly a fintech app. I couldn't recall, but it's probably an app downloaded from a traditional financial institution. So. Got it. That can count. All right. Let's say you're graduating college this year. You're suddenly 22 years old again. What is the career choice that you're making? I don't think going to Wall Street is as exciting as it used to be. I still think it's great training ground. So it's it's the safe thing to do. You'll learn a ton. You'll get paid well. So, you know, put in your time there if you want. And you then have an option. If you're good, they'll want you to stay. If not, you could leave. I'm not going to comment about business school since this is a Wharton podcast. So I'll leave that to others. I have my own views, but I'm not going to share them here today. <laughs> but I think you could have a lot more fun and certainly make a lot more money being an entrepreneur. And I think we've been witnessing that over the last few years. What I shake my head at when, you know, when I was managing the FIG group at Barclays is a lot of folks caught this bug a little bit too much. I know this answer is longer than you bargained for, but be wise about your choices. People are going to be the third person that, you know, a new candy, candy bar company or something like that. But, but, you know, make the right choices. Just don't leave because it sounds exciting, but in any event, a lot of entrepreneurial things, you know, that are backed by the PC community can do today. Yeah. I mean, coming from a longtime Wall Street executive, that's a big endorsement for entrepreneurship and technology. And I, of course, have my own thoughts on the MBA. I don't think it is what it once was. You have to be very, very strategic with what you use it for. I don't think it's just, you know, the show up. Like you said, everyone in your floor, when you were first starting out, had an MBA. I just don't think that's true anymore. So next question. What is the dinner meal before a long night of work ahead? I don't know. If I have a long night ahead, I try not to eat dinner and I try to finish my work so I could eat a nice dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Once I have my dinner and if I've had a glass of wine, I, I prefer not to go back to work. So if I'm, if I'm pulling an all-nighter in the office, which yeah. you know, 
frankly, I don't do that much anymore. I'm probably grabbing a burger or something. It's it's not a fancy dinner. <laughs> Great. All right. Last few. What? Who's your favorite Yankee of all time? Oh, favorite Yankee. I'll have to go with Derek Jeter. Oh, that's a cop-out answer. <laughs> Too easy. Yeah. Uh, all right. Last two. What is your favorite Wharton memory? I know we touched on it briefly earlier. My favorite Wharton memory. I, you know, I think it's a general memory. Actually, here's one for you, being a Yankee fan. I was in Wharton when the Yankees were playing the Red Sox. I think it was the round right before the World Series, or maybe it's the World Series. I, I probably couldn't have been the World Series. The best part about Wharton is meeting other people. It's, you know, mm-hmm. um, I actually have another good Wharton story I could tell you if we have time. So, But it's meeting other people. It's networking. To this day, I still uh, have colleagues that I talk to or see in business. But we were renting a house off campus on like 41st Street or wherever. And all my roommates from Wharton were around watching the baseball game. And that's the game that the ball went below Billy Buckner's legs. So that was my favorite. Oh, that's iconic. (laughs) That's great. And what was the other story that you were? Okay. So the other story is, so on my, someone called me up, uh, this is about a year ago from uh, uh, a Wharton professor. Uh, He found my name and you'll know who he is, but he, he runs a VC firm for Wharton uh, students, both undergrad and, and grad. And um, he said, hey, let's have lunch. And I thought he, he said, you know, maybe I could help you, whatever. I thought he was going to show, I thought he had some ideas for my SPAC. So I said, okay, let's have lunch. So he came up from Philly. <laughs> I thought he was going to have some ideas for my SPAC. It turns out, I think he was actually looking for me to invest in his fund. It's called the Red and Blue or the Blue and White Fund, whatever it's called. Right? Yeah. And so we're kind of at the end of lunch. And he said, by the way, you know, you were one of my top students. And I'm looking at him, it's like, you were my teacher. <laughs> and so he had, he actually pulled out on his phone. So I was a Wharton class of 87 uh, MBA. They didn't have nothing back then. Uh, there, there was no mobile, there's no nothing. But he had kept all the grades from his classes and I guess scanned them into his app at some point or his computer and kept them. So he knew exactly what my grade was in 1987. <laughs> And it blew me away because, first of all, I couldn't remember the course. I could barely remember. Right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and, and it turns out he introduced me to a guy who was one of the founding members of Venmo who's now on my board. So that's why connectivity in this world, whatever you do, connections is really important and goodwill. And, you know, I like to say to investors, you know, all I have to protect is my reputation. And that's why it's right. important to, you know, always do the right thing. There's so many people that have been successful that used to work with me, for me, that have gone on to be, you know, frankly, a lot more successful. But, you know, almost every day that passes, networking with someone that there's some path that we crossed or had a mutual person in the past. So, Well, Lee, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I want to thank you again for coming on the Wharton FinTech podcast today, sharing your story and your journey, and of course, teaching our listeners about SPACs. Thanks, Ryan, and good luck with your career as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. 
I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.